All right, good afternoon. It's Captain Chris Torres, uh, Vice President of Allied Pilots Association. I'm here with APA President Captain Ed Sitcher for our uh, monthly update to the pilot group. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Uh, here's what we're going to be doing today. We've got a quick update from uh, the national officers, and uh, then we're going to go into the committee updates. So normally we've got a long list of committees on here giving uh, updates and information to the pilot group. We have tried to keep this uh, very focused on negotiations. So to that end, the only committees that we have on here, we've got a brief update from the stop committee, and then we're going to go into the negotiating committee. And a majority of the time is going to be spent answering the questions uh, that the pilots have sent in for the negotiating committee. Uh, so with that, uh, Ed Sitcher, Captain Sitcher, you are up for your update. Hey, Chris, thanks. You did a good job of introducing it. Look, we've tried to focus this more onto what is uh, in front of the members is the most important issue, and that's the status of our contract negotiations. So I'm not going to bore you with uh, anything else. Chris uh, has focused this. We still would prefer the questions to be submitted online. Uh, that allows us to get to the questions that are most succinct and the questions that haven't been asked before. So uh, please try to cooperate. We'll try to get you as much information in as short a time as possible. Thanks, Chris. I'm going to hand it back to you. All right. Thanks, Ed. And I did put the note in there because I know you wanted everybody to uh, to take note of the, uh, the positive rate podcast um, that came out, I think, Saturday or Sunday. And it's got a message from uh, Captain Sitcher talking to Sandra Mertz and I believe Tammy McBride from the Communications Committee uh, were on that. So if you are not subscribed to the positive rate podcast, please do so that you get those auto updates uh, when they become available. And the town halls are now available on the podcast as well. Uh, just for your planning purposes, 24 May is when we're planning to do the next town hall. And if you've got feedback on uh, how we're doing this, please send it our way via townhall at alliedpilots.org. And with that into the question. So the first question, uh, why are we seeking a such a, I'm sorry, why are we seeing such a discrepancy in calm to the membership regarding negotiations? First, the negotiating committee says we're on the one yard line. Then the BOD and president say that we're uh, that we're far apart. Uh, so, Ed, if you'd like to jump in at the end here, um, I'm going to start off, though, by saying you need to go back to the negotiating update that made that one yard line reference on March 25th. Uh, here's the, the update, um, and I'm going to reference the, the language in here. The update did not say that we were on the one yard line. I'm going to underline it right there, and I'll read it to you. It says, many of these items are on the one yard line. And it goes on to say some key areas require additional bargaining. Uh, a while after that, on the 7th of April, the board had gone through their April board meeting. They got an update from the negotiating committee, and then a leadership statement came out from them. Uh, and that said, there is, and I'll underline that as well, there is still a meaningful gap remaining between our two parties' respective table positions on key provisions. So that's not drastically different from what the negotiating committee's earlier comment was regarding key areas requiring additional bargaining. Uh, the negotiating committee's most recent update on Sunday showed that there are, in fact, uh, a good number of key items that are still depicted in red, meaning they're still being discussed. Those are things like pay and sick time, vacation and scheduling rules. So there has been a fairly consistent message that we aren't where we need to be in regards to these big ticket items. Uh, Ed, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, Chris, um, if I can real quickly, the uh, it's an opinion of whether or not we're moving towards a solution anytime soon. Right now, we started by uh, the negotiating committee started by handing off some pretty easy to agree on things. There were win-win stuff. They were really low cost. There were stuff that you just got to scratch your head. Why didn't we agree on this before? And as we proceed down this path of negotiations, we, we come closer and closer to the really big issues, the quality of life issues that we don't feel the members are going to go ahead and vote for this agreement without. And I'm talking about RO, RA, AF. Uh, you know, ability to trade trips. This is the kind of thing that uh, we've, we've seen 
more of a reticence of management to go ahead and agree to recently. We always knew we were going to get industry uh, matching pay rates or industry leading pay rates. It wasn't like we were going to go back and try to accept that 633 that we had at the table a year and a half ago. We knew that that was coming. But on these QOL issues, these are these are big, heavy items. They're big move items. And we're right now we're at that point where we need the company to understand that without those items, it's still a no on the vote. So it depends on which side you look at this from. You can't just say quantity. Have we agreed on 80 or 90 percent of the items we had at the table? But the point is that the big ones, the ones that are important, we still haven't reached an agreement on. All right. Thanks, Ed. On to the next one. Uh, let's see, when we ratify the new contract, what will happen with the excess of dues that have been collected and how much do we currently have in, the res in that reserve? We haven't heard anything about freezing or refunding dues. So I'm going to have uh, Secretary Treasurer Pat Clark address those points, but I do want to address part of that second question, uh, specifically the suspending of the half percent dues collection. So last year, the fall board meeting resolution 2022-36 was passed unanimously by the board, and it has a mechanism in it to suspend the collection of the half percent dues for Section 6. Uh, says that when the amount of deferred dues exceeds the maximum value established in policy manual, collection of that additional half percent dues will automatically be suspended until the amount falls halfway between the minimum and the maximum level established by the policy manual. So with that, uh, Pat Clark, if you would uh, kind of talk to the numbers of, uh, of those two questions. Sure, Chris, thanks. I think you hit it. The, there's usually confusion between what we call reserves and deferred dues. And both of those are spoken to in this question. I think what we're addressing here is the deferred dues. And deferred dues is the unspent portion of the additional half a percent dues we collect during section six. That resolution that you spoke to speaks to uh, when we would return that deferred dues sooner than the end of negotiations. And, and the numbers are actually, once we exceed, 50, these are rough numbers, but $15.5 million, if the deferred dues, the unspent portion of our additional half a percent exceeds 15.5, we would pause the collection of that half a percent until it reaches that halfway point. And that halfway point is another hard number, it would be 10.5. We're not there yet, so it's not going to be suspended yet. The returning, of the, the returning of the deferred dues is defined in the CMB and it's uh, Article 3, Section 6. Basically, at the conclusion of Section 6, uh, and all litigation, I'll actually just read it. The, coll the collection of one half percent dues from the respective members shall cease after a new collective bargaining agreement is ratified and all related arbitrations and other litigation resulting from negotiating the new collective bargaining agreement have been concluded. It goes on to say all remaining funds from the additional dues shall be refunded and or rebated to the respective members as soon as practical according to a formula approved by the board of directors. So when that point in time comes, whatever the balance of that deferred dues is, normally we have a, we have a dues holiday to quote unquote drain the balance of that deferred dues. I hope that clears it up, Chris. All right. Thank you, Pat. Uh, to the next question, and I'm going to call on uh, LaGuardia Chair Larry Cutler for this. What is the plan if months go by and we don't have, uh, it should be, we don't have a contract? Larry. Hey, thanks, Chris. This is uh, Larry Cutler, LaGuardia Chair. Uh, I appreciate the question. Uh, listen, as domicile reps, we're keeping all the legal options open that are available to us uh, under the RLA. Um, we're locked with, together with the 
national officers. We're working on a well-researched, well-thought-out plan. Uh, we're not going to be deterred from that plan. It was updated and modified coming out of the failed TA last November. That hasn't changed. Uh, just going anecdotally, straw polling points to a very robust participation level in the strike vote. Uh, if we can't reach a deal through direct negotiations, it's going to be a spring and summer of our pilots expressing our readiness to strike in a lawful but very public demonstration of solidarity. Of course, under the RLA, we still have the option of uh, going to the NMB, requesting mediation services from them. If the BOD chooses to do so, I suspect it'll be done with a very strong strike authorization vote in hand for the possibility of eventual uh, possibility of self-help release. Uh, and we also have the backstop of knowing that DALPA reached a mediated agreement at the NMB. Um, so with that, uh, I would, I'd like to also put a quick plug in for the uh, for the concourse conversations. I was uh, in Boston today with uh, the newly elected reps, Gemma and Paul, was able to answer these questions and others in person. Uh, Charlotte's having one tomorrow. Uh, I hope that everybody uh, in, that's passing through Charlotte or based there will uh, show up in Charlotte so that uh, the reps, Doug and Eric, can answer these questions in person. And back to you, Chris. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Larry. Next question, uh, Captain Sitch, I'm gonna throw this one to you. If AA says they can fill new higher classes for the foreseeable future and with new Czech pilots still applying, what incentive does uh, AA have, if any, to give us anything? Hey, Chris, thanks. Uh, look, certainly a large piece of our leverage is in section 12 in the Czech Airmen and the training bottleneck. Uh, remember last July when we had the, the meltdown in the trip trade system, Robert Isom, uh, expressed one concern and one concern only that he wanted last July, and that was a quote-unquote bridge to Section 12. So uh, when our Czech pilots, when our, when our fellow pilots step up to take these Czech pilot positions based on what they think is going to happen with the contract, trying to get in the door maybe in front of somebody else before these uh, this new uh, Section 12 is agreed upon, and they get some pay rates and some quality of life enhancements. It, it certainly does. It undercuts a key piece of leverage we have. But I think the important piece is that isn't our only piece of leverage. It isn't. I mean, certainly, I've been advocating against stepping up and volunteering for these assignments, volunteering for SA, doing anything outside of what's mandated to do by our contract. And I feel like if, if most of our pilots had stepped up and done that and, and uh, complied with that wish, or that desire that, hey, we would already have a contract because we pretty much given the the last ability to operate this airline for the last year to this management team, despite the beatings that we've been taking in exchange. But the, the point is, there's a lot of stuff coming up. And, and Larry Cutler kind of uh, hinged on it here. At, you know, we're going to do everything we can legally do, but we also have key points that you need to realize that management wants. They're going to go ahead and they're going to want to roll debt. They've got still $38 billion or plus or minus that they have to go ahead and, and refinance. They're going to want to pay bonuses out to their to their managers. They haven't had bonuses in a lot of time. The, the directors haven't. And it's going to be hard to sit there and dole out cash to these guys when at the same time they're saying they don't have enough cash to give to their pilots. Uh, I could keep going down um, all these key areas, I think, with which we have leverage. But the point of the matter is, um, you know, we've got, We've got a bunch of, of arrows in the quiver, and which one we fire depends. I'm not going to go ahead and tell you exactly which one I plan to pull at one time because it would be giving our strategy, be telegraphing our strategy to the defense, and I guarantee I wouldn't be able to throw a pass once they knew where it was going. But we have plenty left. 
All right, thanks, Ed. Moving on, we will now go to the stop committee. Captain Steve Pacheco, stop chair, is going to give us uh, a few updates. Steve, you are up. Hey, everybody. I'm in the hotel in Charlotte doing the uh, concourse conversations with the stop and uh, NCN and all the other committee volunteers out here that are doing a great work trying to educate the pilot group. Uh, as far as the strike center update, uh, everybody knows that open up a one uh, April. It's uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five. If you have to call after hours, it goes directly to my cell phone, leave a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. As for the uh, voting access and uh, eligibility, um, you know, you can do it on the APA app. That's the easiest. It's a couple clicks away. Strike vote uh, on the allypilots.org. And then the third way is we sent you a text message um, that has a link directly to there. So there's um, several ways to do the uh, voting. For those that are eligible, I think everybody knows by now, um, if you're not probationary as of, let's say, April 3rd, uh, you're, you're eligible to vote and your vote will count. But we do encourage everyone to vote. So all 15,999 uh, pilots that we have, uh, please get out there and vote. Um, it, it helps. It helps with our unity. Uh, we are developing a management playbook for y'all to read uh, and it's basically how to counter what management would do that's going to come out here in the next couple of days so expect that via email um uh, email blast from stop once again uh thanks a lot and i'll talk to you all later see you and, and Airport. Steve, we'll, have a, we'll have a couple questions for you here i do want to uh because I, I might have misheard it the in terms of the eligibility to vote anybody who is eligible to eligible to vote on the date that the strike vote closes which uh, is scheduled <laughs> april 30th their votes will be counted. So as an example, we have pilots who will hit the one year mark on April 27th. Those pilots uh, will be, they, they will be past the probationary point at that point when the strike will closes. So they will be eligible to vote. Uh, to move on to the questions for you, Steve, first one is why is the strike, strike vote open for a month? If it is being done electronically, why not finish it up in a week? All right, that's a pretty good question, Chris. Uh, well, electronic voting, yes, that's absolutely easier and faster to track. Um, but within my limits of legal parameters that we have going, uh, I don't have the means to see who who has voted um, or who hasn't voted. So what I did is we implemented the stop committee uh, strike center, and they're calling all 15,000 pilots once, twice, or sometimes three times. And then we're having multiple concourse conversations throughout the network to ensure we um, educate everybody um, as and have as many possible uh, educate everybody on the salve. Um, but honestly, Chris, you'll be surprised on how many people didn't even know that we had a salve going on or, you know, and what, where to go and vote. So please look out for your stop representatives and your NCN representatives. Um, I get that electronic voting is faster, but it will take time. Uh, we are actively engaging all the pilots to get as close to 100% participation as possible. And I also, engage, uh, also encourage you to engage your fellow pilots uh, multiple times and guide them through the process. Um, we're few and far between, but there's many of y'all out there on the line doing work every day. So please uh, talk to each other and uh, encourage each other to vote. Lastly, uh, please vote. Everyone should vote. And please do not delay uh, voting up until April the 30th. All right. Thanks, Steve. Next question. It seems that most people are well in favor of a strike since AA is dragging their feet. Can we immediately start the process for a strike? What will that timeline look like? Okay. Uh, let's see, during your stop con uh, concourse conversation, Chris, and the strike center phone calls, I've noticed the, the majority of the pilots right now uh, we have interacted with are in favor of the strike vote. Uh, like I tell everyone I speak to, this is a huge step in the process of seeking self-help. 
Uh, but that time come only after the board of directors elects to go to the NMB, much like Larry Cutler said, and are legally and we are legally released to uh, go to self-help. Uh, how long that timeline would be? I think that could be uh, months, you know, over a year uh, once we reach the NMB. Uh, but with that said, I don't want anybody to withhold their uh, vote or voting no. That won't put us in any uh, disadvantage or advantage. With or that, it won't. Um, it won't put you in a better place with management. Uh, it won't be. Um, it won't, and we must be unified. So remember, this is a unifying vote. I voted yes with the highest possible participation rate. Uh, and the vote of yes is going to affect. Uh, it will affect future bookings for the company create uncertainty among Wall Street and create uncertainty for management and most important, show our unity amongst our pilots and to management that we're ready to do what it takes to get the industry leading contract. That's it. Thanks, Steve. There's two questions that came up in the Q&A that uh, I'm going to throw your way here. Uh, what is the first one is what does the stop committee say to those who are no voters for the strike? Honestly, don't cut your nose off to spite your face. Um, and if you want to be the only person in there in the group that's not voting, uh, for no, for any particular reason, whether you hate APA, you, you want ALPA, this isn't the time. Let's get this vote. Yes. Uh, and ensure everybody is uh, walking in, in line with each other so we can get that, again, that interest leading contact that we want. Excellent. And then uh, second question here. Uh, can we get an update with specifics on the strike vote, participation percentage, demographics, rate of uptake, et cetera? No, I'm not. Like I said in that first question, I'm not allowed to uh, talk about or I, frankly, I don't even know who's voted, who hasn't voted, what the percentage is and what the numbers are. But I will tell you that every time we call, there's the majority of the, the pilots that we're talking to, they're they're in favor for the strike. Okay. Uh, thank you that for that, Steve. And we're going to move on now to the negotiating committee. So I had John Owens and uh, Chris Walker's name on here, but I believe this is going to be, looks like we have Matt Stanley from the negotiating committee. BJ West uh, is on as well and, uh, and Mark Meyer. So uh, Matt, are you going to be speaking for the group? So your video's on, but your audio's not, Matt. Yeah, Matt, unmute. Okay, how about now? There we go. Um, Matt, if you want to, if, if there's any general update that you can give us beyond what went out last uh, Sunday, and then we'll jump into the questions after that. Hey, Matt, so you're unmuted, but we're not hearing you. We heard you before. about now yep there we go okay uh so hey uh apologies for the third false start but uh thanks again for the opportunity to be here i am first officer matt stanley one of the negotiating committee members and uh look forward to answering your questions today thanks chris and uh, president Sitcher for setting this up uh, i want to say first thanks thanks to the members who took time to submit questions today this is an important opportunity to have your questions answered a little bit in a rapid fire format and, uh, and thanks a lot for your support of us. We are working extremely hard uh, on your behalf to uh, try to attain the best possible working agreement for, for our whole group. Uh, for, for just a quick update from us, uh, I'll tell you that the, re the reason you're stuck with me today is because the, the rest of the committee and the entire negotiating department is uh, in negotiations today. Uh, I just came from uh, company headquarters. We kind of alternate back and forth on locations. And uh, we're in a, a session right now talking about 4C and trying to make the recovery obligation provisions as, uh, as, as good as we can possibly make them. So that conversation is happening right now. And, uh, you know, I, I tell you that I'm here because we as a committee are dedicated to, to making sure that we can get as many of your questions answered. So thank you for the opportunity.
All right, thanks, Matt. We'll go into the questions. Uh, so what we've tried to do with these, we, we've tried to put these into categories so that we're kind of talking about the same thing as we go. So starting out with uh, just the general stuff. First off, what's the target date for a TA? Right, so, you know, I just want to be honest here. There's there we do not have a target date for a TA, and I don't I don't mean that to be evasive. If there was a target date that we set or that the company had set, I would tell you. But what I what I can share is that it's also not necessarily a part of our strategy to try to obscure the date from you. Uh, we're working as as quickly as possible uh, to work towards an, a good agreement. And I'll tell you that. Uh, from our perspective, we feel that the company is motivated and bargaining in good faith with everything that we're pitching to them in proposals. And, and when the company sends us a proposal, we uh, we give it the due diligence that it deserves and we turn it back to them as quickly as possible. So uh, don't have a target date, but uh, I can tell you that we're all thinking in terms of days and, and very few weeks uh, versus something longer. All right, next question. What is APA doing to ensure that the new contract is implemented on schedule and penalties are established for non-compliance, what would those penalties be? The first, the first thing I can tell you that's a priority for, for Captain John Owens, our chair, is that we want a contract that is uh, easier to understand, that goes both ways, uh, that is implementable and is enforceable. And so we're doing everything we can in language and provisions to make this an agreement that you can live under and operate under and know what the next step is when things don't go well. Uh, but I think the question here really goes to an implementation timeline. And listen, our, our position uh, is that to be an effective agreement, the maximum number of things need to be implementable on data signing. And then where, where there are cases where we just know that there is legitimate programming that has to be done. And listen, there's gonna be a few things like that because we're gonna try to achieve massive gains here. There's gonna be some things that need to be implemented. And in those cases, our, our goal and objective there will be to set forward a reasonable timeline uh, that's spelled out in actual dates, not uh, something that's squishy. And, uh, you know, when you look at the MOU at the end of the Delta agreement, uh, I believe it's 23-01, MOU 2301 in the Delta Pilot Working Agreement, you can see examples of that where there's item by item of a few items uh, that stretch out as long as two years for implementation. Penalties, you know, uh, I guess that is a subset of the question. Uh, that's it's not something we've negotiated so far. And uh, I, I think before we would think about penalties, we'd want to see what the total value of the agreement is. And But, you know, the main thing is that uh, the, the RLA already has provisions for when something is not complied with. So, uh, the RLA already kind of spells out what you do when uh, when there's a breach of an agreement uh, and how those disputes are handled. All right, thank you. Next question. How much of a hindrance is the APFA contract Me Too clause to our quality of life contract improvements? So uh, this, this is an interesting question. I know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm new to the negotiating committee and I, I you know, maybe I would have previously thought that uh, all the other work groups and their contracts have a big impact. But one thing I can tell you is that uh, in our negotiations, in our discussions with the company, there is not an example. Honestly, there it, the other work groups in this organization and this company don't come up. And so uh, it's, it's really hard to assess how much of an impact there is because 
it's not a subject of discussion. It's, it's really not something that we're negotiating against. Uh, and certainly, we haven't been asked by APFA to negotiate on their behalf. And, uh, the, and uh, similarly, we haven't asked them to, to negotiate for us. And so any clauses that they may or may not have uh, have really not seemed to be any factor in terms of our negotiations. What I will say, uh, and hopefully this makes sense, is I'll use the example of uh, non-rev travel. Non-rev travel is a company-wide benefit. And there's uh, medical would be another thing. There, there are a few things that are company-wide benefits, and there are a few things that we've engaged on where they've said, hey, listen, this is a company-wide thing affecting all 130,000 employees. And there are some instances there where they're perhaps a little hesitant to change those because of the nature of those and, and the, the fact that it impacts the whole company. Um, so hopefully you can kind of appreciate that perspective. But for the most, for the most part, the APFA part is not a factor. Hey, Chris, right. can I uh, can I add just a little on to yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you know, comparing pilots to flight attendants is kind of comparing apples to oranges. There's a there's a training bottleneck for our pilots right now. There's not a training bottleneck for the flight attendants. Uh, there's a shortage uh, of us, and and we're being paid unusual amounts to stay, and and that's just not happening for the flight attendants. But but at the same time, we're dealing with the same animal across the street that they are. They're having some of the same scheduling issues that we're having. They're having the same abuse that we're having. And in some cases, they're treated a whole lot better than we are. So, um, you know, the, the negotiating committee has just been given the marching orders to just go ahead and get the best contract they have and just ignore the flight attendants right now. And, and I think the flight attendants, by virtue of the fact that they just entered the mediation process with the NMB, they're looking at probably another... 10 to 11 months best case until they come out the back end of it. And I think they're perfectly happy to go ahead and let us negotiate in front of them. Delta's flight attendants, as you know, are not uh, unionized. Southwest's are. And they've had no, the, the flight attendants in general, other than uh, on Delta's property, where they were offered a lot of low-hanging fruit just to keep from unionizing, the flight attendants in the industry in general have not made any progress. And that's got to be taken into account at the table. So I think that uh, that Matt and John and Chris, uh, those guys are doing a great job at the table of just going ahead and getting the best we can for the pilots because of the pilots. Let the company worry about the flight attendants later. Thanks, Ed. Uh, next question. Mr. Isom recently stated that their table position is worth $8 billion in incremental value over four years. Does APA agree with this valuation? If not, what's the difference? To the same point, how much above Delta's contract is management and APA value our table position? So this this is a this is a little bit of a nuanced and complex question, right? Uh, we until until both sides have com really completed negotiations and all the final positions are known, it's impossible to value a deal. Uh, and I think you can see that every, provi every provision that you're searching for and that you're wanting to get agreement on has some amount of value. What I would say is that we are aiming at achieving parity or exceeding delta in every possible venue. And uh, some of that value will be in pay and some of that will be in quality of life. And when you saw in the delta agreement, they, they assigned about 75% of the value of their deal uh, towards 
actual pay and direct compensation and about 25% towards quality of life. Uh, but uh, two more things about value that I'll say. When you look at value, one, you have to consider the size of the company and the amount of the pilots. Right now, we're somewhat comparable with Delta in size and number of pilots. There's some thought that they might have slightly more pilots on property than we do right now. And the other is the term and the duration of the agreement. All those have an impact on valuation. Uh, but I, I think one thing that I would, I would tell you to kind of help you understand a little bit how uh, the valuations work is both sides have uh, economists and, and numbers people, if you will. Our side is represented by uh, Nick Silva, who is our ENFA expert. And he is in uh, not continuous, but regular communications with, uh, with the similar functionality on the other side. And, and when there's a disparity in the agreement and the numbers, uh, we, come, we look at the models and see where there's an error in someone's model. And I'll tell you that, that uh, nine times out of ten, it's our valuation that is, is really, really good. And so we on the negotiating committee have uh, good faith that we're adequately representing your priorities financially uh, to achieve the best possible agreement there. And uh, Chris, to Ed Sitcher, again, if I could just weigh in on the valuation thing, Matt did a pretty good job of explaining it. But the one thing these models don't take into account are changes in behavior. For instance, when we had that holiday pay provision on the table last year, we costed it out at $185 million and that was based on management issuing the same kind of trips once we instituted the holiday pay that they instituted before we had the holiday pay. And you know that that just isn't gonna happen. This management team has thought of every way they can around our contract language and ways to mitigate their costs. And so in this case, if a five-day trip touches one double pay day, our intention, my intention at the table was to get the whole thing paid double, knowing full well, that in the future, American Airlines isn't going to issue a five-day trip with just one day touching the holiday day if they could. Some wide-body trips, you can't change it, and everybody can. So, um, you know, I, I don't put much stock because there will be a behavioral change in these $8 billion incremental value uh, non, you know, numbers that they throw out. Because I'll tell you, at the end of the day, they're going to be doing what they can to get around that number. But at the same time, you know, this is a management company that comes from accounting, man. They know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. These guys, what, what is it worth to you to have the ability to trade trips? I don't know what kind of a value we put on that. But to some of us on the in seniority list, it's priceless. So um, I would be careful when we toss around how much this contract is worth. I just kind of look the other way and go, yeah, whatever. Also remember that if Delta gave their pilots $8 billion over four years, and only 75% of it was pay, then you got to ask yourself, um, well, what does it take just to get up to par with Delta right off the bat? Did it cost us one or two billion just to get on par with them? This is our first contract out of bankruptcy. Delta's had a several iterations out of bankruptcy. So we're, in other words, we're giving them a discount right off the get-go. If we continue to just keep pace with the increases that they give their pilots, we will always be behind Delta and United and every other airline. So uh, that valuation's a loaded, it's a loaded gun and I don't put much stock in it. Anyway, th thanks, Matt. That was a pretty good answer. I appreciate you letting me tag on the back end. All right, thanks, Ed and Matt. Next question, we should not <clears throat> need extensive user guides or classes to understand our contract. Why is the APA not focusing on simplifying sections of the contract like scheduling, reserve system, et cetera? 
Uh, thanks for this question, whoever submitted this. Uh, I'll tell you I love this question because uh, I've been here going on, coming up on about five years, and I came here from a, a different career, not uh, 121 related. And I'll tell you that I, I found arriving here, I found this whole situation to be complex, difficult to understand. And, and when I, with a, I, I feel like a decent college degree and a master's degree, don't know what my next move is and what to do, I find that wholly unsatisfying. And I can tell you everyone on our committee absolutely agrees. So uh, this question was kind of asked in the negative and uh, it, it uh, assumes that we're not doing this. So I, I just, uh, just want to let you know that we are doing this. We, uh, we are focusing on simplifying sections of the contract. We absolutely want to put contract administration, not contract administration per se, but contract compliance pilots who are uh, volunteering uh, and time off, we want to put contract compliance out of business. We want to get the Compass Project to where they don't have to have extensive user guides to teach new hires. The Compass Project should be focused on the primary emphasis that, you know, the whole idea of mentoring is designed to do to get people on board. So we are absolutely focusing on this. We absolutely agree with the position that user guides extensive shouldn't and classes shouldn't be required. Uh, and that said, uh, given where we are right now, I'm glad that our union has these resources available for you. You should use them, and you should know your contract and fly your contract. Thanks, Matt. Next question. Oh, we're taking this opportunity to get stronger language to minimize the effect of ventures American may take on our international flying, both wide body and narrow body. We could even go further and contractually reduce our regional flying, both company-owned and non-company-owned. Okay, uh, you know, I got, I got to tell you, my, my answer on this one is going to be probably wholly dissatisfying, and uh, and I'll just apologize in advance. But uh, uh, the answer on this is going to be kind of short. The APA has not opened, meaning we have not made a proposal on Section One, and the company American Airlines has also not opened on Section One right now. So uh, I'm going to leave that answer at that. And right now, you know, our task is to uh, to follow in line with our board of directors uh, given framework for negotiations. And uh, that's what we're following. So right now, uh, we haven't taken any action on this question. Next question, moving on to pay. Why have we changed the pay raise increase to date of hire to only those hired 2023 or later. Many of us recently hired have faced three to four months between date of hire and training. Why are we being excluded? Okay, uh, this this is a this is an important question, and uh, for those who are are unaware, I, I bet most of the people are aware. But uh, our, our the APA position is that we are the only airline, uh, at least that we've been made aware of, that has any such provision where your pay increases for longevity are not tied to date of hire. Uh, if you can find another example of another airline, I guess keep it to yourself, but uh, we don't know of any such situation. So in this example, we find our contract to be wholly lagging and uh, really uh, inappropriate, honestly. There's no other situation that I've ever been involved in with any sort of employment where the first day I'm on property doesn't start the clock for pay increases. So. The APA, this, the second thing I'll say is that uh, this item is still being negotiated, and I'll tell you, it was even a discussion in our morning session today. Uh, 
Third, uh, this, you know, so it's, it's not done. And APA position remains this. Our position is that going forward, in other words, not retroactively, but going forward, uh, anyone who has less than 12 years of service, anyone who hasn't maxed out on the pay scale, uh, our position is that this, should, this provision should apply to them. So I know that there's a little bit of confusion from the update that we sent uh, on Easter Sunday on April 9th, uh, and this, this question, I think, is tied to that. So the first thing I want to say about that is your sound offs have absolutely been heard. Uh, you know, I, I wish we had time to respond to all, uh, all of you every day. Uh, we've decided to prioritize for the negotiating sessions. Uh, but we do read your sound offs, and we we see this as an issue loud and clear, and your voice is heard. So we are not wavering on our position here. We know this is a priority for you, and we want to get this fixed. All right. Uh, Sorry, uh, operator error. What's the current offer by the company with regard to snap up if we go before United? Uh, right now, there is no offer from the company on SnapUp. Uh, it, is, it is, unfortunately, the answer is as simple as that. The company hasn't made a, an offer on SnapUp. And, uh, you know, that's going to be something that's subject to the total value of the agreement and is, you know, is probably still in the future part of negotiations about how we structure this deal. And I'll kind of leave it at that. How are Actually, we addressing Group 1 pay? Yeah, sorry, I cut you off. I, I should say one more thing about United. No, I'll, I'll skip that. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's go to the Group 1 pay. Uh, for, for Group 1 pay, uh, the APA position is that uh, any pay proposal that we're going to put forward, uh, and I'll tell you it's been a topic of discussion today, and uh, our position is that we don't have any Group 1 aircraft on property, and uh, we... Therefore, don't think there should be group one. So we're attacking every single provision in uh, the various sections of the contract. There's things about average line value. There's things about pay. Uh, there's things about being forced back to group one, displaced to group one, and what your, how your pay is impacted. So our, uh, the APA position is that group one pay uh, should be eliminated because it doesn't exist. All right, moving on. Let's see. The holiday pay structure says it's an additional 515 for all sequences slash duty that touch a holiday. Is this per day or per sequence? Is that saying we're only getting an additional day of pay rather than the 50, 75, or 100% for the trip? Okay. So the ink is not dry on this. And I would say that, you know, there's a few portions of what I would call holiday premium that are still to be finally decided. And that could impact all of this. But the vision, there's the, the first, let me back up a little bit to say that we, uh, we know how painful the holiday pay was uh, in this past year. We know that for sure. What we also know is this, this program was hugely successful, uh, on really bilaterally. Our pilots changed uh, bidding and, and they bid uh, because they wanted the premium and the company was rewarded with an excellent operation. And so uh, that said, what we endeavored to do here is continue with an incentivization system that the company can execute, uh, execute reliably, 
and uh, get you paid on time because we found the delays in the pay to be very unsatisfying, and we know you did too. And so the construct here is uh, when you say per sequence or per day, uh, the concept would be any event, and our position is uh, training, simulator training, a deadhead to training, uh, or a sequence, uh, if it touches a holiday, uh, that it would pay 515. Now, that's just one part of it. Think, you know, let's say, let's say Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Thanksgiving were uh, both set as holiday, premium holiday designated days. Then your sequence, if you picked up a four or five day or you were awarded a four or five day and it touched both of those holidays, then you would in our vision, in our mind, in our, in our proposal, you would be awarded 515 for each of the holidays touched. Similarly, if you had a, uh, if you had the the sequence like they like to build, where you're sitting on Christmas in a hotel and there's no flying that day, of course that sequence touches the holiday and you would be paid for that. We also have the position that if you were awarded a sequence for premium, that the sequence would pay premium in addition to the stacking of the holiday pay of 515. So I think you can see here that there's some, some value in how this would be awarded and with added uh, benefit of being a little bit more simple. Next question. And these two are tied together, so I, I put them together, but they're from separate uh, submitters. Why are we asking for $2,000 a month for TDY and $2,000 if you don't need a room? Seems like an example of APA overreach. And then the other one, in contrast, why only $2,000 a month for not using my TDY hotel? My Marriott bill for LAX will be $6,000 this month. So I love this question because uh, our, our going in position here in, in Section 7, uh, expenses away from base, uh, we really wanted to, what we really wanted to achieve was a simplification. We really didn't think it was uh, fair or simple when pilots stopped uh, obtaining per diem, stopped accruing per diem when they left, uh, if the pilot leaves the, the TDY location. So with that premise, uh, I want to say that uh, the company actually proposed this. Uh, the company actually proposed a simplification uh, that, that so far we, we actually think is quite a good solution. Uh, and that's that you're just going to get this money and then you, you can be wherever in the country you think you need to be to execute your sequence. If you drop all your, if you bid TDY and successfully clear your schedule and don't use the hotel, then that $4,000 is yours to keep even if you don't go to the TDY location. And, uh, you know, in terms of the second, the part two of this question, the, uh, I can't really comment on what the company pays or doesn't pay for hotels. Uh, it's not something that's visible to us. Uh, the, it looks like maybe this particular person submitting the question knew what the bill was. Uh, you know, the company obviously has negotiated rates, and, uh, and also those negotiated rates don't include points as a liability. And uh, so, but that said, uh, our thought is if you, you know, clearly if you are TDY and you want to use the hotel, you're going to get to keep the hotel. The $2,000 for the hotel is, is a provision just for the instance where you decide not to use the hotel and you advise the company that you're not going to use it. All right. 
can we see what Delta's profit sharing payout was in 2017 and 2018 and what we would get paid with the profit sharing proposal we are proposing with either their profits or ours? If there's a significant difference, how are we compensating in our Section 6 ask to recover that difference in other areas? So I, I apologize a little bit here. We just didn't have uh, time to gather up the charts and the data for the specifics here. You know, clearly Delta's profit sharing in uh, 17 and 18 was really high. Uh, you know, we all have friends at Delta, and and, uh, and the more the older we get, the more senior our friends get there, and and the bigger the profit sharing checks are. Our, I'll say that. And then the second thing I'll say in relation to Delta is historically, American Airlines has not been as profitable as Delta, and so uh, that is what it is. And uh, let's let's hope for all of our benefit that we become the most profitable airline in the world. That said. Our design of the profit sharing has uh, intended to mirror what Delta's is so that uh, if Delta were to make the same profit or American were to make the same profit as Delta, uh, the payout methodology would be similar uh, with the exception of uh, we have some bigger work groups that it's shared with. And so uh, the division is always going to be a little bit different. And this is an example uh, where it's it's somewhat of a company-wide thing, and uh, our ability to make it a separate pilot-only uh, kind of profit-sharing model would, would be seen as pretty, pretty volatile and probably not achievable in, in the span of these negotiations. All right, moving on now. Uh, let's see, training. Will blocked OE trips be resolved in our current negotiations? A pretty pretty short answer here. Our, our, the APA position is this is something we're absolutely focused on. We've heard your feedback loud and clear. The board has tasked us to to address this, and uh, this is absolutely something that we're working on. And uh, I, I think you'll see an improvement from uh, from discussions we've had. We actually met with the company today uh, regarding Section Six as well, and uh, and this is this is going to be better. All right, on check pilots in section 12. As an L-type check pilot, can you please explain uh, what you're negotiating for the L-type check pilots? Perhaps give an example of hourly pay for the L-type check pilots, both wide and narrow body. So the, uh, you, you might have noticed the absence of uh, the term L-type. And uh, for a little bit of history here, I'm certainly not the most knowledgeable on everything section 12 related. Uh, I've never been a check pilot, but you know, as many of you are probably aware, uh, the L-type is something that the company has uh, has not wanted to hire anymore into. And so uh, that program is actually set to uh, sunset, and uh, there's going to be a, a new kind of a newer concept, uh, LCP, line check pilots, uh, that will essentially replace that. So the people who are L-types now will be able to continue, but they're not going to hire any more uh, L-types into the program. How did we end up agreeing to a 25% override for the line check pilots performing flight standards work when Delta agreed to 30%? This should not be overlooked and will cause an even greater check pilot resignation down the road. So for the for the uh, the LCP and the the flight standards work and the, the check pilot compensation, uh, first first thing I'll say is that the uh, the company realizes that they want to increase the size of their training pipeline. And uh, so this, anything that we pay for the, for the check pilots 
an, excuse me, anything that, that is agreed to for the check pilots is not coming out of our checkbook, if you will. Uh, it's not being uh, in the accounting provisions. It's, it's not going against us. And uh, from what I've seen so far and from what we, you know, think is mostly agreed to, uh, we, we think that the, the evaluators, the check pilots do great work uh, for our pilots here are going to be compensated at least as high as anyone else in the industry uh, when you look at the total compensation. So the, uh, the override is only going to be a portion of their total compensation, but when you look at the total work rules and the daily guarantees, uh, we think their compensation is going to be comparable. And I would tell you that, uh, I, you know, I don't think there's going to be a lot of resignations. Uh, you know, certainly we would continue to not uh, want people to, you know, go volunteer for that right now until this deal is inked. Uh, but, uh, but what I would say is that uh, I think this is going to be very fair. All right. Why are we throwing so much money at the check airmen? Are those pay raises occurring at the expense of the rest of the pilot group? So, yeah, I think I kind of answered this a little bit already. Uh, I just want to reiterate here that uh, none of this bill is going against uh, APA. Uh, the company has said uh, from the very beginning that any anything that we spend for uh, for compensation is going to be uh, on their side. So no cost sharing uh, for us. And uh, the, really the reason that the company is willing to spend this amount of money is because they know that they have a shortage. They want more more people. They want a better system. They want a bigger pipeline. And uh, we, you know, honestly, we want that too. We, we don't want the backlog. And uh, for those of you who are, you know, feeling the effects of people that don't have the right quals, they don't have their LT or they don't have their eagle call, and that's causing you to get assigned something out of seniority. Uh, we absolutely want this to all, all get addressed. All right, moving on now to work rules, section 15. Something being done to improve reserve working conditions, like reducing the number of duty days from 18 or lowering the 85 hour maximum. So we, we have, uh, we've approached the reserve system, uh, both from the perspective of the nature of this question by trying to reduce days and lowering the maximum. And uh, right now that's not something we've been able to achieve agreement on. What, what I will tell you is one of our priorities has been to reduce reserve staffing. And uh, what we see in a lot of bid statuses uh, throughout the system is the amount of reserves is, is really kind of gross, honestly. Uh, when you compare against any other company uh, peer competitor, we have more reserves than any other uh, company, quite frankly. And so we are working uh, in negotiations to uh, essentially design a lot of components of the reserve system, and, and we hope it's going to be better. What is pilot-centric two-way electronic communication system? So just a little background here. As a lot of you know, uh, Section 15, Paragraph B, uh, 15B, as we call it, uh, covers electronic communications. It's already something in the contract, right? This is already something that's there, but uh, here, we, here we go with an item that's unimplemented. So our, our, really our strategy and our thought here as the negotiating committee was based on the board direction, you know, rather than try to spend negotiating capital, seeing if we can get the company to uh, agree to remove something that's already there, let's make this a system that actually works. This goes back to the, you know, 
why do we have a system that's difficult to understand and that doesn't make sense? And one of the things I, you know, I don't know about a lot of people, but I would say at least I hope a lot of you agree that the telephone game is, a, is kind of ridiculous. And so our thought is let's make an electronic communication system that is uh, not only a way for the company to reach me uh, about, we kind of think of it maybe as pilots as in the negative, like, oh, I'm being resigned or I've got RO, uh, but let's make it a way uh, that can Im have improved optionality. Maybe it's something where I can decline an RO. Maybe it's something where I'm advised of premium being available. Uh, maybe it's a way that I can initiate communications with the company simply through this small little device that I carry in my hand and let them know that I'm no showing the deadhead with a single click of a button. And so our, our objective here is, uh, is just that, to make it uh, simpler and better and easier. Will there be language requiring crew scheduling to wait a specified time period before a trip is assigned in DOTC? We, we hope so. We, we, I'll tell you this, we, this is a position that we're negotiating for uh, intense, intensely. We, uh, you know, look, we think this is actually not only better for us as pilots, we think this is better for the company. So any reticence they would have about this, we quite frankly kind of don't understand. I mean, clearly if there's assignment that's, if there's a trip that's open, that's close in, it's obvious that the company is going to need to assign and find a solution immediately. But when you think about it, when there's when you're outside a certain time window and a lot of time remains for the trip, why wouldn't the company want to establish a standard to allow as many pilots as possible to bid, so that within the constraints of seniority, they can find the best solution for the for globally, really, or at least within the base, for filling all their trips. So we think uh, we think this is important. We we've heard your feedback on this and. Uh, we want there to be language that uh, at least dictates some amount of time. Uh, and again, you, you, we want you to get a notification electronically on your mobile device or your device of choosing. If you don't want it to come on your mobile device, we understand that. It could be just on your company iPad. Uh, but we want you to be able to receive notification and with a single click, submit a ballot uh, saying that you, wanna, you want this trip and you'll take it for premium or OG or whatever the situation is. Why did we increase involuntary long call to short call conversion from five to six without any agreement, any agreement to improve long call provisions? Additionally, 30 or even 60 minutes pay is not enough to pay for a hotel room for most commuters. Hey, it's uh, it's BJ West. I'll uh, finally jump in here and give give Matt a quick break. <clears throat> uh, regarding the long call to short call conversions, we increased the number uh, in exchange for some added pay compensation uh, associated with those conversions. Uh, for instance, if it's your um, sixth conversion of the, the month and it's your last day of the block and it goes unused, uh, you get your half hour plus the three hours of uh, conversion pay for those three separate items equaling three and a half hours for uh, one conversion. Uh, so uh, it's a quid pro quo uh, and it, you know it's not ideal to go from five to six but there's a little bit of give and take in everything we do and as part of the more holistic solution to uh, the reserve assignment system. Uh, we think this will work pretty well with uh, the other provisions that we're still negotiating. Thanks, BJ. Uh, next, please explain the benefit of bid high slash low lines as a replacement for hybrid lines. 
Yeah. Um, so hybrid lines, uh, another unimplemented item. Uh, there's several components to hybrids that, that remain un unimplemented. The ability for pilots to bid, how those trips are assigned to those pilots, and then how those lines are constructed. The, uh, the construction itself was supposed to be completed in PBS. It's not right now. It's a giant manual process after the bids are awarded. Um, basically, they've, they've just tricked PBS to award uh, a pilot with less than uh, the line construction window. So um, that's how the system functions. And then manually, they go in and build them later. Um, those, those lines can't be bid for as a pilot. Uh, as you guys know, if you're a bubble bidder, sometimes you wind up with a, a hybrid line and sometimes you don't. Uh, and then there are all of the issues with how hybrid days are placed, where you can put them, and then uh, they are currently using the recovery obligation procedure to assign those days. So uh, pilots generally aren't fond of being assigned uh, the highest time trip uh, that is out there. They would rather have some ability to proffer and have some say in their, in their quality of life with respect to what trips are available, but they are not given that opportunity. With uh, a high-low option, we believe it, it um, serves the same function with inside of PBS. Um, it allows the system to have the flexibility to solve to give the most bidders uh, the most appropriate bid in accordance with their uh, stipulations and uh, it will be awarded in seniority order, which is the, the huge advantage to the high-low. You're never going to be assigned a line um, with a high-low option. Uh, you're, you're, you're going to have to pick that option um, to, to be given the high-low. Uh, the other side of it is that something to the effect of like 80% of uh, hybrid line bidders, don't quote me on that number, but it, it's extraordinarily high. Um, the number of hybrid line uh, awardees that drops all their hybrid days uh, to zero is, is very high. So uh, basically the people that get hybrid days are just dropping them anyways and they aren't utilizing the pay protection provisions uh, contained within to, to pay protect them to the bottom of the line construction window. Um, so if, if we give pilots the, the optionality to bid high or bid low and they're awarded those sequences based on seniority, we think overall system-wide it creates a better uh, PBS solution. And I'll just add, I'll just add two things. Uh, what we found uh, when we looked at the hard data on hybrid lines is that they're really only awarded to about 1% of pilots through, uh, through the normal PBS process. So one of our thoughts here, in addition to honoring seniority, was let's build a system that could, in theory, help a, quite a, 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 large, a, a bigger percentage of pilots, essentially, uh, rather than just 1%. And then the other thing I want to emphasize is the voluntary nature. BJ just kind of hit on this, but I'll explain it in a, in a little bit different way to emphasize that the high and low lines are voluntary. If you're really senior in base and you bid a low line, that bid can in no way involuntarily force someone else high. And what we mean by low and high is outside the line construction window. So my bid of a, so kind of think of it in like the opposite of coverage days, if you will. Uh, my, my bidding behavior uh, in, in the sense as a senior bidder in bidding a low line cannot force someone else to get a high line. They might be higher in the line construction window, but uh, there would have to be an opposing bidder. In other words, the total uh, average of all uh, bids in a month, has, the mouth still has to work out. Anyway, that was a long answer to that. Hopefully that answers that. All right, next question. Uh, why are we entertaining zero lines? It seems as though this system will simply make it easier. The high seniority pilots who have, uh, to have no schedule and snatch up all the premium flying. Yeah, uh, zero time lines were a production of uh, the COVID era. Uh, those were agreed to as part of a furlough mitigation plan uh, during a series of LOAs. 
uh, for anybody that wasn't on property then. Um, and they're, they're going to be offered at company option only. So it's not going to be a, a system where a pilot can bid a zero timeline only to go out and pick up premium. Um, we're still exploring several options with respect to furlough mitigation uh, and other premium provisions uh, that aren't settled yet. Uh, so the, in, in the bottom line, though, the company will offer these, and their, their offering of them will likely be very rare. Uh, what are pilot shared sequences implemented at date of signing? Uh, so another unimplemented item from the list uh, were split trips, um, both the, the company's ability to split trips and ours. Um, as a quid pro quo in Section 4 for the company's ability to split trips, uh, we said, hey, you've got to turn on pilot split trips. Uh, part, of those, part of the splitting of trips is a shared sequence. So if you've got um, a... Uh, we'll just say an airline brother or sister that wants to pick up the other half of your sequence, for instance, as it comes back through base, uh, we think it should be not a problem to split that sequence off and, and give it to another pilot. Um, part of other, our other issue, as since this has been unimplemented, was that it needs to be turned on at date of signing. So the company's agreed to uh, manually uh, process these as the pilot calls in and says, hey, here's the other employee number. Uh, I don't know what the process is going to be exactly, but there will likely be some sort of three-way call with both employees. You split the sequence as it comes through base, and off you go on your individual chunks of sequence. Uh, the other component of that is uh, full trip uh, splits, or the ability to split off, utilizing the provisions of uh, TTS. Um, and uh, we're still working out the, the details of that uh, and the programming related to that, but the ability to drop all or some uh, of your sequence into TTS and, um, you know, rig dependent, uh, have it go to open time uh, would be a huge uh, quality of life advantage. Uh, why are we still negotiating about reserves being flown into a DFP? This should be a hard stop. Our days off should be our days off. Yeah, frankly, we're still negotiating it because the company's reticent. Uh, they don't, they don't want to do it. They've got, they've built a system uh, under current book that, um, that utilizes, it, it has to utilize the provisions of that section, uh, J11F, uh, I believe is the quote, but um, they, they have a reserve search program that automatically searches that. So and it, it utilizes FOSS to do that. And anywhere, any system that touches FOSS uh, requires a lot of time uh, to program it. And it's not, a, it's not an unwillingness at this point. Uh, it's a matter of time. Uh, that's required, and you know you, you can make the argument that there's some some money wrapped up in that as well. Uh, it's just not that simple. Uh, as to say, pay more. Uh, the programmers are hard to find. The programming itself is hard to accomplish, and it takes a lot of time. So we're trying to find ways around that. Um, but as of right now, we just have a, um, a divide on where we're at as far as flying into reserve days. The company has agreed uh, to eliminate movable days. Uh, so those will no longer be used as part of that other provision where you, you can get the movable day moved and then flown into the next DFP. So at least uh, half of that onerous provision is gone. Uh, but right now we're still apart on um, up till noon on a DFP. We're still working on it. Did you talk, did you talk restoration? Uh, no, uh, that's the other component is um, uh, just as part of the, the table positions, um, we've made our position known that uh, you know, if if there was to be a provision uh, remaining in the in the final game here uh, that the company got to utilize you up till noon on a DFP, then we would need the day off returned, not just in forms of a slide as it is now, where you're 
your hours shuffle, and those hours that do shuffle aren't always advantageous to the pilot because uh, if you have a late bid wrap, for instance, sometimes you never get those hours back truly. Uh, so uh, part of our, our, our counter proposal to, to that was uh, that should that occur, uh, the pilot would uh, receive a compensatory day or a, a return day back. Uh, we're still negotiating both uh, whether or not the company is going to be allowed to do it, and then if they are allowed to do it, what the provisions uh, therein would, would look like. On to Section 19, what's the impact of adding the jump seat weight to taxi fuel versus having it in the basic operating weight? Yeah, so our our uh, our really our thought in negotiating this has been that the uh, that the impact would be the same. Listen, uh, the jump seat is something that's that's super important to us as pilots. Especially, we know that uh, there's a high percentage of pilots that commute, and the jump seat might be their only ride home uh, or to work, right? And they're both equally important in different ways. And so our our objective here was. When the jump seat is your last option, uh, we don't want the weight to stop you. And so our our thought here was this was the way that seemed simple and uh, retained captain's authority and uh, gave the captain the flexibility needed to help accommodate you as a jump seater. The negotiating update simply says improved deadhead seat assignments. Can we get specifics? So, uh, you know, I, I can't give you a whole lot of specifics here. Uh, we are, uh, first thing I'll say is we discussed this today. This was uh, yet another topic that was in uh, subject to negotiations this morning. We have not yet uh, reached final agreement on this, and there's some work to be done. What I will say is uh, both sides are keenly aware of what Delta is offering, and uh, we think that you deserve the same level of comfort and uh, li literally, you know, really, I think the strength of our argument is based on the fact that this is uh, it's a fitness for duty issue, and you want to arrive to your next segment uh, rested and ready to execute. But it's also just a simple comfort and taking care of your employees. So we think this is important, and it's something that we're uh, continuing to negotiate on and, and more to follow. The Delta pilots reassign misses their commute. As a result, the company gets that pilot a uh, positive space seat or hotel room in a positive space seat the next morning. We looked at this option. So we're familiar with this. Uh, we're certainly familiar with this provision for them. It's uh, when they have a re reroute. Uh, we can tell you that much of our discussion on uh, 15N, which is reassignments, have focused on improving reassignments uh, that you experience here. So both the uh, you know, and we're looking at uh, the reassignments, not only in terms of pay, uh, but also in terms of quality of life. We are still negotiating this session, so I can't elaborate on a lot of details, but uh, we want to make this section as good as possible. A1 passes used to be provided to pilots facing a commuter miss due to full flights, but that policy stopped years ago for some reason. Can this be added as an option to the commuter policy so that crew scheduling can't use the excuse uh, quote that they can't do it. So my, uh, I talked a little bit about this, uh, not necessarily as an attempt at foreshadowing, but uh, this is this is an area where uh, the company, uh, you know, this really kind of starts to go into the uh, company provided passes and travel, which is a company wide policy, and 
it's something uh, that they really weren't too interested in changing in terms of uh, travel. Uh, but we haven't actually, uh, right now there's been no changes to the commuter policy. Uh, so I, I guess I would kind of just leave it at that. Is there any discussion of A1s for personal travel, more D1s, or a higher tier of pass for pilots? Uh, no, that uh, kind of similar to to the previous question. We haven't uh, uh, we haven't not in, in accordance with the board framework. Essentially, we haven't entertained any any change to the uh, non rev travel benefits that you receive. Can we get a provision to use an unoccupied cabin jump seat? It's an interesting question, and it comes up every time we go through a round of bargaining. Uh, and as far as I know, uh, the company has remained kind of neutral on this. They don't really, they're, they're unopposed to it either way. Uh, the answer really comes down to uh, the, other, the other work group. And uh, I'll just, I'll be blunt. The flight attendants uh, control that seat, as it were, right now, even though it's on our jet. So I think it's going to require some, uh, I don't want to say bargaining with the other work group, uh, but it's definitely going to require some discussions with them. Um, and uh, really, it hasn't, to be honest, it hasn't been tasked by the board of directors at this point. Yeah, and, and I'll, even, I'll even add on to that, BJ, that uh, just so everybody's aware, flight attendants are not allowed to sit in our jump seat um, as a jump seater based on the FAR limitation of uh, being in that seat below 10,000 feet as opposed to their limitations, which is a contractual limitation. Yeah, Chris, I think you hit it on that. And we brought this up when the flight attendants were over uh, with their negotiating team a few months back. Uh, and, and this is exactly where it went. They, they treat it as a tit for tat. You could sit in our jump seats when we can sit in your jump seats, but it's apples to oranges, as Chris has said. There's FAR regulations that dictate this. I can't say that there was even a, a temperature for them to approach this issue right now. Uh, all right, moving on. Section 20. Will Section 20 be removed in the current negotiations? And either Matt or BJ, whoever's going to answer this, can you just give us a very high overview of what Section 20 is? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Chris. So, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know what Section 20 is, I hope you never know, honestly. Section 20 is physical examinations. And it's the process by which the company identifies that they believe that you might not be fit for duty. And we're not talking about, generally speaking, we're not talking about they see that you have a broken arm that you didn't disclose. Uh, they think that uh, for whatever reason, there might be some sort of chronic health issue. And Section 20 can and has led to the end of people's careers. Uh, and so it's it's very, very serious business. And I will tell you that we have spent, uh, you know, in respect to our brothers and sisters who have been affected by this process and any pilot who may have to find themselves in a situation like this, we've uh, spent a significant amount of time negotiating with this with the company. It's important. Uh, so now that you kind of know and understand and appreciate what the section is, I will tell you that there's a 0% chance this, this section is going to get removed. Uh, the, the company would uh, would do anything. Uh, I, I would say that they would they would go towards other measures of, of mediated outcomes before they would get rid of this section. There, uh, 
And I'll, I'll also be frank that I don't see any contract that doesn't have some sort of uh, Section 20 in it or equivalent of physical examination. So when I look at all the other OAL uh, working agreements, they all have something. And so what we did then, uh, as tasked by the board, given that you think this is going to continue and go forward, how do we get this to be the best possible uh, outcome for our pilots? So what we saw in our agreement in comparison with others were some uh, things that uh, we, we didn't think were as good. And so we think we've made some good strides here in better pay provisions in terms of when you're paid, if you're removed uh, from active status, and how long you're paid. Uh, we've improved the uh, cost sharing uh, for the medical examiners. So they, uh, the company is going to help uh, pay the, the burden, uh, is going to basically share the burden, or in some cases is going to take on the burden of paying for certain provisions in this. And, uh, and then finally, there's a, a much clearer and much more well-defined return to work process. Uh, you know, we've seen there have been instances where uh, pilots just kind of get stuck in this process, and, and we really didn't want that to happen. Once, once you think that you're well and uh, you can pass an FAA Class One medical, there should be a very clear and expeditious path to return to active flight status. And so we've, we've, we think we've taken every possible measure to improve the language here and, uh, and to make that better. Anything you want to add on that, BJ? Uh, only, only to say that in that, uh, in that entire return to work process, uh, the pilot has the ability now to uh, effectively dispute uh, what the, uh, the company charges uh, that the pilot has, has wrong. So, Prior to negotiating this section, the pilot didn't really have that ability. Once once the company dic medical examiner dictated that you were out, you were kind of out uh, until you could prove uh, to that medical examiner uh, that you were back. With the provisions we have uh, met on on these, uh, the pilot's going to have the ability to challenge that uh, company medical examiner with the pilot medical examiner, um, and then it goes to a neutral third uh, party medical examiner. Uh, in the event that those two disagree. So it's a, it's a really uh, valid process uh, that, that steps outside of the company's wheelhouse and it steps outside the pilot's wheelhouse and it takes it to a neutral uh, third party. And that's, that's the real advantage here is that the pilot has the ability to, uh, to appeal the process. All right, moving on. Uh, last section here before we wrap it up, uh, LTD. First question, is LTD still agreed in principle? with a 30% increase for those out on LTD and 401k and increases for future pilots on LTD? Pretty quick pretty quick answer here, Chris. Uh, yes and yes. Uh, really, these are both uh, agreed in principle. And uh, I think more importantly, this is a chance for me to do a little bit of an advertising pitch. We, we do put a lot of time and effort into sending out some of our updates, uh, and the one we sent out this past Sunday on April 9th has a lot of bullets related to LTD and they're, you'll see that they're colored in blue. So all the things colored in blue on the update in the PDF, uh, we really think those are agreed to in principle, we, and we think we have a mutual understanding with the company, and both of these are in there in blue. Why are pilots currently on LTD not being offered the same benefits as pilots who go on LTD after the agreement is ratified? So the, uh, we have uh, agreed in concept. Again, this kind of, uh, I do want to point you again to the April 9th update. Uh, a lot of blue bullets on this exact question. And uh, 
Pretty impressively, honestly, I got to say, uh, credit where credit is due, you know, in terms of both in terms of what our ask has been as directed by the board, your board has represented you well, and uh, the company's willingness to meet the, meet here. Uh, agreed in principle, we've got a 30% increase in benefits, uh, benefit payments, removal of all remaining offsets, uh, offsets and then the uh, increase from uh, 24 months of mental health and chemical dependency to uh, 60 months. Uh, for those who haven't uh, used up uh, the 24 months already. And so I guess what I would, uh, this is, I hope this isn't seen as hurtful because it's not meant this way. For the people on LTD, you know that we're feeling for you and, and you are still part of our pilot group and we're negotiating on your behalf. Uh, the, the, it can be a difficult subject uh, because from the company's position, this is kind of like an insurance policy, right? And when you go out, when you have a claim on insurance policy and then uh, have your active policy and you say, hey, I want to in increase my policy, uh, once the policy has been enacted on a claim, it's not often that you can uh, be successful in changing that. And we, we think we've actually had some success here. So uh, we're happy with what we've uh, achieved uh, on that and, and also in recognition that uh, for those that are on LTD, it's never enough. You know, it's certainly not the same as being a pilot. We know that you want to come back and uh, and fly, and uh, we're thinking about you and, and negotiating hard for you as well. Will LTD pilots who are working into 2022 or any portion of the retro period be eligible for the retro pay? So anything uh, related to retro, uh, whether tied to LTD or active pilots or people who have retired, nothing has been decided and nothing is known. Uh, and that includes uh, whether we get a retro check, whether we get a one-time payment. Our, our position is that we're negotiating for both. Uh, we we want to have all that and, and uh, we hope that you've seen what the Delta pilots got and uh, our position is that uh, we would accept nothing less than that. So uh, how those provisions play out and how it all comes to be in the total value of the agreement, we just don't know yet, but we're, we're considering, considering all these thoughts. We know that there's a lot of people on LTD. We know that there's a lot of people who have retired since the amendable date, and uh, certainly all of that plays into uh, being a factor. For current LTD pilots, has there been a consideration of negotiating a higher percentage increase or a coal increase or retro slash back pay? Uh, actually, the consideration, the basically the the framework, uh, the board's framework tasked us for for getting the thirty percent uh, and. Uh, that's what we've achieved, and uh, right now there's there's no ongoing discussions for a COLA increase, uh, and then the retro piece is kind of uh, part of the previous question. Retro and back pay really are part of the previous, just don't know yet uh, how the final structure is going to play out. All right, I believe that is, uh, so that's the end of the pre-submitted questions. Um, Matt, I don't know if you or BJ can see the Q&A list, if there's any of the questions that are in there that uh, either of you are able to answer. I'm going to take a look at that real quick. So before I go to the Q&A, let, uh, let me just go back to, uh, you know, talk about a little bit about contract enforcement. 
and contract implementation and timeline. So I, I want to I want to hit home and, and do a better job of covering this question. Uh, we we all know that we do live within the RLA, and uh, we all know that there's some strengths and weaknesses as it relates to enforcement there. And so, in that vein, we're very cognizant of the weaknesses of our current JCBA, and some of that has been uh, the implementation. And from the very start of this process, one of the things we addressed with the company was unimplemented items. In fact, uh, our who was then on contract compliance, BJ West here, now on our negotiating committee uh, with his team of contract compliance experts, helped develop and present to the company a complete and comprehensive list of 60 plus items. I think it's 62 or 65 items that are unimplemented. Like you, uh, we find that wholly unacceptable. So we, uh, as a negotiating committee, are committed to an agreement that's that's enforceable and that's implementable. And uh, we're also committed to uh, holding the company to that by the appropriate language in the contract. And so uh, I hope that kind of answers that question a little bit better, uh, that we're not just relying on the provisions of the RLA, uh, but we, we are intent on, uh, as you see in the Delta Agreement, we are intent on uh, strict implementation timeline that that addresses that. Thanks, man. Uh, and I, so, so, go ahead. Chris. Uh, never mind. I just I just saw Larry's uh, uh, comment in the chat there. So um, so with that, and we're we are pretty close out of time. I know you guys got to get back here pretty soon, and I got to run to a captain's dinner in seven minutes. Is there anything in the Q and A um, that that you guys can address at this point? And while we're doing that, Larry uh, Larry Cutler, if you wanted to add some more, and I'll give. Uh, you can filibuster a little bit for Matt and BJ to look at those questions. I wanted to add to what Matt just said. I think he did a good job of uh, of talking about it. But I just, you know, as a domicile rep, I just I just want to say, you know, the board, the the national officers, we're all in agreement. We're not going to agree to anything that doesn't have clearly defined and enforceable implementation timelines. That includes penalties for noncompliance. Uh, this has been a core principle of the agreement since the beginning. Uh, Matt just touched on it. Uh, yes, of course, we do have the RLA protections, uh, you know, minor and major disputes, et cetera. But, um, you know, the other part is, uh, is just been a core of this agreement. We absolutely will not agree to anything that does not have that. So thanks. Thanks for that, Matt. Absolutely. And uh, one of the questions in the Q&A is why is a day not a day across the board, uh, midnight to midnight and same paying credit regardless of flying, training or vacation? Uh, this, this is actually, I'll tell you, this is a great question. Uh, we actually, when we started this process, we kind of had one of the, the mantra that a day is a day is a day. And, and I'll tell you that our, our partners at Delta felt the same way. When you start looking into this, uh, I'll tell you it's incredibly nuanced. Uh, and so the, the bottom line is there are, uh, when you start looking at a day as a day, uh, there's the pay aspect and the credit aspect. And uh, in a sense, you really do have to bifurcate those. Uh, because right now, the fact is that there are not enough pilots to go around and the pipeline is not big enough to train more than what we're training. And the pipeline's not training enough as it is. So what we're looking at is creative solutions to this. Uh, in, in, the, you know, in the long term, we are continuing to push for things, as you saw in Delta, that pump up both the pay and the credit for other things. We, we really want to get away from the line compression uh, issues that you see when you have things like training 
and uh, when you get vacation that the week isn't worth a week. And so we are working towards that, uh, but in the, in the span of this agreement, you won't see everything worth 515, but we think you're going to see a lot of things worth a lot more than what they are right now, both in pay and credit. PJ, anything you want to add to that? Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, TTS because there are several questions floating around in here uh, on that. Uh, locked out of trading two days prior and uh, the, the complete lockdown with respect to TTS right now are two of the, two of the items we're continuing to work on. Um, more control over the OTLs uh, or some mandatory amount of trades uh, or something. Um, the, the negotiations for that are still ongoing and we are still working very hard uh, to achieve a trip trading system that, that works for you guys, that works for everybody on property, that gives you the flexibility that you need uh, to work your line. Uh, there was one question in here about, uh, where did it go? Hotels, uh, update uh, to hotel improvements and hotel language. Uh, the uh, Sunday um, release that we put out was kind of vague, improved hotel language with the required minimum amenities, selection process incentive for a company to select higher quality hotels. Um, the required minimum amenities is basically a, a chart that we've put together. Uh, it's agreed to in concept that, that, that outlines the minimum stuff that a hotel has to have. Uh, it's an MEL. Uh, you know, there's certain items that can be missing uh, depending on uh, the type of market that you're entering. Uh, we've got expanded language on hotel banding as far as time, uh, time goes and where the hotel uh, Sits with respect to distance from the airport and the length of the layover. Uh, there are um, improvements. Um, I just fell off the top of my head. Um, hang on one second. I'll get back to it. I promise. Yeah. Well, let's go to a question from Doug. Uh, and Chris, you just cut us off when you're ready for us to be done. Uh, Doug asks, uh, haven't heard it sent, discussed since the 90s with the small increase in pay rates requested and discussed. Could we please look at pay time to begin at sign-in, not break, and push back? Uh, so first, I'll tell you, I want to get to the heart of your question second, but I kind of disagree with the premise, uh, with the premise being that there are small increases in pay. I'll tell you that uh, we absolutely will not accept a small increase in pay, and uh, we expect the compounded pay increases to uh, be at or better, at least parity or better, with what Delta achieved over the course of their agreement. And uh, for those uh, for those rates to kind of bring this profession up back to where it was in terms of compensation. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, we have broached some ideas and, and uh, brainstormed a little bit on this with the company. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the company's computer system, the, the programming is challenging. I don't think we're gonna get a change on that in this agreement, but the company is actually uh, pretty interested in some forward thinking on some of these that uh, that would actually be somewhat industry leading. So uh, I think there's some hope for the future here. We have some good ideas. The company is uh, probably willing to meet us there when we have uh, the next round. And uh, so, Chris, unfortunately, I think uh, we're being called back to the to the negotiating spaces to uh, continue with our stuff. Unless there's something uh, super, super critical that you think we should address. I just want to say thanks from all of us uh, for your support in the negotiating committee and the negotiating department. And uh, yeah, so, we're continuing to work as hard as we can to get a great agreement. Yeah, thanks, Matt and BJ. And I, I do see Mark Myers on here as well. And, uh, and Nick Silva for, for taking the time out. I got that same text from your deputy chair saying you need to get back into negotiations. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, thank you to the listeners who are on here. 
uh, for attending and, and being involved. Um, we will uh, again plan on this uh, a town hall next month um, and stand by for more updates from your leadership and the negotiating committee. So thanks.